The following episode of Bookmark was first broadcast December 12th, 2023. The following episode of Bookmark was first broadcast December 12th, 2023. All right. Good afternoon and welcome to Bookmarked, uh, where today I am very happy to welcome Elizabeth Crook uh, to talk about her wonderful new novel, The Mad Stone. Uh, Elizabeth is the author of six historical novels, The Raven's Bride, Promised Lands, The Night Journal, Monday, Monday, The Witch Tree, and this one, along with some articles for Texas Monthly and other publications. She grew up here in San Marcos, mostly, I think, uh, so I'm particularly happy to welcome her back. Graduated from San Marcos High and still has a lot of uh, ties here. She's received the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America, a Jesse H. Jones Award from the Texas Institute of Letters, and just this year, the prestigious Texas Writer Award from the Texas Book Festival. Is there anything I should add, or do you want to say hello? I'm just happy to be here, Priscilla. I had so much fun with you last time when we talked about the Witchway Tree, so thank you for having me back. Oh, well, thank you for coming. Okay. Uh, I'll try a summary. I noticed you wanted more of a summary than I was, I was going to get. You so do you, whatever you well, want. No, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, this, is, this is what you have. Uh, it's very exciting. It's 1868, and 19-year-old Benjamin Shreve is living in Comfort, Texas, and supporting himself as a furniture and cabinet maker. As Ben tends to business in his workshop, he witnesses a stagecoach leave a passenger behind and go off with the passenger's bag, which contains a mysterious fortune. The passenger, named Dickie Bell, then hires Benjamin to take him in his wagon to catch up with the coach, which draws Benjamin into a drama whose scope he could never have imagined. On reaching the coach, they find that its passengers include a pregnant young woman named Nell and her four-year-old son, Tot who are fleeing Nell's brutal husband and his murderous brothers. They're the members of a vicious gang that terrorizes free blacks. Remember, this is 1868. Uh, Nell has reported them to the authorities just because she's so horrified at learning some of the stuff they've done, uh, even though her husband is a member. Benjamin and Dickie help her in her journey to the port of Indianola, where she intends to board a ship and leave Texas. It's the story of three people sharing a hazardous and defining journey that will forever bind them together. And it's told by Benjamin as a letter to Tot to be read when he's older so he'll understand the things that he witnessed as a four-year-old and may have confused or painful memories of. Yes, yes. Right. Okay, I have to start with my very favorite thing about the book, which is Ben's voice, which uh, ben also is the, the narrator and protagonist of The Witch Ray Tree. He's very clear. He's often ungrammatical, unable to spell unfamiliar words, especially Spanish, which is kind of funny. But also, my favorite is the, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which you, you, you can't exactly see, but it's spelled with you know, it C's. actually was spelled that way back then. Oh, really? Yes, in the history books, you'll see, um, uh, I mean, in the very obscure history books, mm-hmm. you know, you will see that that is the way it was spelled. I was surprised as well. Oh, oh And I... so most people do think, you know, that he, this was his spelling, mm-hmm. but it actually was the time of the day spelling. I wonder why they went with K's. 
instead of C's then. I do you know, too, yeah. Because it seemed more, maybe it seems tougher and more aggressive or something like that. <laughs> maybe so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so one reviewer uh, commented on Ben's, what he describes, and I don't think he's got it, but I'm not sure I can exactly describe the tone either. I keep trying to characterize it. He says it's, he has a curious lack of intimacy and distance from the story's tense events. Uh, but for me, the, the interaction between the tone and the harrowing events is what makes the, the magic of the story. I mean, if he went on and on and said, oh my God, this is happening, oh, uh, it, it wouldn't be the same. He, he tries to, well, I don't know, let me read, let me read my, one of my favorite samples of this, and, and maybe that'll, that'll, maybe you can talk about kind of why he's, why or whether you would call, consider him detached. In, in this scene, uh, Ben and Dickie have a corpse, which they're trying to put into a wagon, this is going to seem like a crazy digression, but do you think there's a there are a couple of corpses in wagons in this book, right? <laughs> yes. Do you think there's a great American literature of corpses in wagons? You know, there it's, may be. I yes, started, now that I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Whether well, you had to get a corpse somewhere where it needed to go, and I guess yeah. Well, I start thinking about wagons lonesome, were the mode of transportation. Yeah. Lonesome Dove, and even mm-hmm. as I lie dying by Faulkner. Yes. You know. um, so, and this is Ben's description. It was none of it clean work. Even shot out of a pocket pistol, a 44 cartridge can blast a sizable hole. The lifeless aspect of the body was not new to me, as I have portioned coffins correct to bodies in my line of work, but it was not altogether familiar neither, death being the hardest thing to make sense of, no matter what form it takes. Yes, and I think with Benjamin's voice, I do not sense any detachment. Um, I saw that description. Mm-hmm. I think it was just a reader's description. I've never heard anyone say that before because, um, and I think they were reading with a different sensibility or something because yeah. basically um, Benjamin is very deadpan in his delivery. Yes. He's very dutiful in trying to get the facts straight and trying to tell things exactly as they happened. So the book boils down to basically action and dialogue, which he is relating very directly. Um, Benjamin does not have a huge sense of humor, but what he, the, sto- the things that he says come across as funny to a large extent simply because of his very um, deadpan delivery. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that reader probably interpreted that deadpan delivery as um, a, a sense of rem- remoteness. But, but Benjamin, he's just very plain-spoken, and he's uneducated, you know, so any florid descriptions or any excessive descriptions of what things looked like or how things were done, he's not going to put in there. He's simply telling the story. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. And I, and I think I will mention briefly that it, at the end of The Witch Way Tree, you talk about uh, the f- getting the first faint intonations of Ben's voice from an 1887 journal by James Wilson Nichols that you found a copy of in your in your in your, in your mother's or grandmother's house or something like that. Yes, uh, uh, and I did look at. He says he when in his preface he says he he isn't a person who writes to show his great skill in composition or to show how important he is, and that certainly seems kind of like Ben is wanting to just tell the story. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. Has, has his voice changed much or developed from the, from the previous book? Yeah, so that's a very good question. 
he's two years older than he was in The Witch Way Tree. In The Witch Way Tree, he narrated, narrated the book at, um, or, or narrated the story to a judge right. as testimony uh, at age 17. And so in this book, he's 19. So he's a little more savvy. Um, he's a little better read because he uh, has been given some books and he has read those books. Um, he is, um, uh, and yet he is still the very earnest, honest, you know, hardworking, uh, moral character that he was in The Witch Way Tree. So that carries, you know, carries for the two years, but you do sense, you know, he, he does a lot of bargaining. I mean, he's learned how to get along in the world. He's Mm -hmm. learned... It all comes down to how many, you know, how, ma- how much money he's got in his pocket, yeah. and he's got to find ways to survive. And so he has had to become a little more savvy mm-hmm. than he is in the Witch Way Tree. Yeah, I noticed that the way he he, he uh, bargains with Dicky and says, "Well, you, I, I can't loan you my horse, but I'll drive you in the wagon, and it'll be it'll be that plus expenses plus, you know." And he's very kind of the feed and the yes, kind exactly. of methodical, you know. Um, you talk about his earnestness and scrupulosity, is that, is that partly the Benjamin Franklin influence? I mean, he, he talks about, he frequently quotes Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and says, well, I tried to do what he would have mm-hmm. done and, uh, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what, what makes him such a, so conscientious? Well, I think, I mean, I think he was conscientious, conscientious before he read that uh, mm-hmm. autobiography, I think that it resonated with him because mm-hmm. he's very much that way. Uh, I think there were a lot of people like that mm-hmm. uh, in you know in the day, mm-hmm. and I I suppose there still are you know. Yeah, uh, I hope so. I hope so. But um, I think he basically you know he was raised by an honest father. He had a, a, a tough time. He had to work when he was young, um, and he you know he. He just is a is a is a good a good person, right. and um, and I th- I think that uh, that that has been with him from the beginning and from his from his upbringing and yeah. how he was taught. And of course, it makes mm-hmm. it, it makes us care about him and and uh, you know hope that things go hope that things go well for him. Yes. Um, in addition to Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, he sometimes talks about Moby Dick, which he read, and I think I I remember his acquiring that book from. I think it was a Union prisoner or something like that in the yes. in the previous book, and he he likes it and he just kind of he tells he t- I think he tells taught, taught stories from Moby Dick to entertain him, um, but one and one reviewer remarked though um, Crook notes Ben's knowledge of Moby Dick, but the guiding spirit here feels more like Dickens than Melville. Well, I wouldn't call Melville the guiding spirit of this book, but although he's referenced, but. Would, would you, the guiding spirit is Dickens? You know, I actually loved that quote. That was in uh, a Kirkus review. Mm-hmm. And the reason I loved it was because I could not figure out how the reviewer, who would be a person who's never met me, mm-hmm. uh, would pick up on the fact that I, I absolutely spent so much of my teenage years buried in a Dickens novel. Um, you know, one after the other. I just loved those books. And... Um, so I guess, you know, how did that translate into this story that takes place in Reconstruction-era Texas, you know, with no similarity that anybody I would have ever thought would have picked up on? And yet this reviewer, just out of the blue, mentioned that in Kirkus Reviews, and I thought, 
wow, that's a smart reviewer. Somehow, <laughs> some or somehow yeah. buried deep in my psyche, still or in my writing, there's there are you know there's that sensibility of of, of how Dickens told his stories. I, I wonder, but I I, I can't. It, put my finger on anything explicitly there's certainly the concern for morality which is dickens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and some of his david copperfield tells his own story right yes i, I think mm-hmm. you know so there's right. there's that but dickens style is so much more florid than yes. than ben's yes you know there's a it's obviously i would never presume to compare my writing to dickens but i think there must have been something that mm-hmm. resonated just in maybe yeah. the characters mm-hmm. and who they are you know and uh how they interact that that uh that, that is yeah. still that was that showed up somehow. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Char- mm. Characters is probably it. Um, did you did you have to cast about? You know, as as you mentioned, the first book, seventeen uh, year old Ben is writing as testimony in a as a witness in a court case, and in this one, he's writing this letter to uh, to Tot to recall and explain the things that happened on this uh, this. harrowing journey Mm -hmm. Um, did you have to kind of cast about I mean who's who's Ben going to be talking to this time I mean Ben doesn't seem like the kind of character who would just talk to the reader I I had I talked to one other writer who said something like well I I I have to have my my narrators talking to someone I mean some some writers don't you know I mean the narrator is just first person and that's it but, right right you know well, um, I did have to have it in um, in both of these instances because you know I couldn't think of any reason why a young man at that age would just sit down and write this if he didn't mm-hmm. have you know in the in the case of the the witch way tree if he didn't have a mandate from the judge right. to do it he would never have he would never have done that, and there would have been a falseness, mm-hmm. a lack of authenticity, if if he had. And so it was the same situation here. Although here he really just wants to to, to write this story so that when this child grows up, because during the course of the story he becomes very fond of the child, and he oh. you know he would he would yes. love to to have this child as his own child, and to you know to be able to marry Nell the mother and and have this family, and so. This is his way, you know, of sharing this story to the child when he should become old enough to read it and understand it. And because the mother had wanted many things to be relayed to the child that he feels now he is the only person who can relay them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also felt like there was a dimension to uh, that part of his... His conscientiousness, his tendency, I mean, as you say, he's, he's just a good person from the beginning, but his tendency to judge his behavior partly comes about because of Tot, because, of, because he's being, being scrutinized by a child and, and during, the, during this, this ordeal, uh, and that's, that's, that's how he felt. Uh, there's, a, there's a moment in the beginning uh, he's watching. Uh, it's it's actually Dicky who is the traveler who is being being treated very unfairly by the sheriff, um, and and Ben says, "I thought I might speak up for the traveler and felt an urgent need to do so, yet my better angel did not advise me of it. And whilst I stood quiet and considered what I might do, I caught sight of you, Todd, looking direct at me from under a window flap in the coach. This is the first time he has ever seen him." I seen only your eyes and a small share of your face, but you looked eye to eye with me and I felt you evaluating my actions. 
I felt the weight of your expectations and the words was urged to my lips. And yet the voice that come to my ear was my worst angel. It whispered to me to stay quiet as who wants to be on the wrong side of the law. Uh, but his, is, is this sort of, in some ways, sort of a book about parenting? I am not a parent, but I know you are, you know, and, and so, you know, kind of, d does that make you even more careful of your own behavior because you're conscious of being an example for somebody? I think yes, and I think that um, uh, that that is a lot of it, you know, for Benjamin, that he begins to see himself in the role possibly of father, you know, mm -hmm. and and um, and and wants to live up to that, and you know, in an honorable way, and and there are many moments where the child, you know, who is essentially fatherless, we know that his father is not a good person, yeah. that the mother is trying to escape. Um, and uh, that the child turns to, you know, Benjamin, begins yeah. to bond with him and trust him and ask him lots of things, you know. So, so Benjamin has the opportunity to sort of play that father ro role, is called to do mm -hmm. it, and does it so beautifully and honestly and simply and, you know, without any self-aggrandizing, you know, uh, uh, himself into that role, he, you know, he, he just falls into it very naturally and lovingly in, in a very sweet way. Yeah. And I love this. This is kind of, uh, well, it is a certain kind of parental love at first sight that almost happens because he sees this child's eyes on him as he is in this weighing this moral dilemma mm -hmm. or something. I think, I want to start talking about historical uh, uh, novels, but I think maybe we could take our first break now. All righty, I guess it is that time, huh? Yeah. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of your host and guests and do not reflect those of KZSM Community Radio or its governing body, SMTX CRA. You're listening to Bookmarked on KZSM, 104.1 FM and KZSM.org live streaming. From beautiful downtown San Marcos, Texas, True Community Radio, just south of Weird. Hello there, I'm Salwa Khan. On the next Mothering Earth, perennial food crops. But we're not talking about the usual fruit and nut trees, but about perennial grains, like wheat and rice. Mothering Earth is your source for sustainable living news. And it's on KZSM, True Community Radio, 11 a.m. on the second and fourth Tuesdays of the month. What's in the daily news? I'll tell you what's in the daily news. Story about a guy who bought his wife a small ruby with what otherwise would have been his union dues. That's what's in the daily news. Read the latest news about KZSM.org, your true community radio station, every Sunday in the San Marcos Daily Record. Look for our call letters in the headline of our exclusive column. The San Marcos Daily Record has been serving our community with news, features, sports, and opinion for over 100 years. Pick up your copy at your nearest grocery or convenience store. To subscribe to the print or electronic editions, go to www.sanmarcosrecord.com or call 512-392-2458. Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections. Now on exhibition, I Pray You Survive, Riding on the Edge. 
The Whitliff explores how our best writers have personally confronted life or death situations, from war to pandemics, race riots, and murder to create their groundbreaking work. On display now at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at thewhitliffcollections.txstate.com. And thank you to the Whitliff Collections for underwriting this show. And I think they gave me my first contact with the, uh, my guest today, Elizabeth Crook, who is here talking about her new novel, The Madstone. Um, this is, all your books are historical fiction, right? Uh, well, yes. Monday, Monday, I don't know if you could really call it historical. It starts in... In 1966, with the Whitman yeah. uh, shooting. From yeah, I re- I re- I've read Monday, Monday, but it's, you know. It's, it's the past. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the past, for sure. Yes. And they're mostly about Texas. There is one, you do get all the way over to New Mexico for one of them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and Tennessee for the first one. Um, oh, oh, that's that's the right. Ravens that's where Pride. they were born. Yes, yes. They were born, or the, um, but you that, get them. Do, but they get. Do they get to Texas? Well, um, uh, in in the in my first book, The Raven's Bride, it takes place almost exclusively in Tennessee. But uh-huh. yes, then it does carry in slightly to Texas. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. What is what is it with fiction and the past for you? You know, I I think. My mom read to so much, to so much growing up, and a lot of the books took place in a different time period mm-hmm. or a different country. So we just became really um, uh, comfortable with sort of leaping out of our own <laughs> lives and, uh, and 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 into these fictional stories that uh, were very you know where you had kids who were living lives very different from ours. And so um, I, I just make that move really easily as far as not the future. I don't think I could ever write a novel, you know, in the future, but uh, novels in the past. And there's just something about imagining yourself back into mm-hmm. uh, a different time. And, um, and then also the research is so much fun to learn, you know, how people got around and, and how people dressed and made a living and all the details of daily life and just to be able to kind of reconstruct that in your mind you don't want to put all those details into a book because mm-hmm. then it becomes a history lesson right but you know if you know those details and little 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 pieces of them can shine through it gives authenticity mm-hmm. to the story and 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 also a lot of visual you know yeah. uh, aid to the reader in reading the story so um i just like being able to construct that world mm-hmm. pretty fully in my mind to understand it learn it and and know what it was like, and I find that really um, fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, the past, I mean, it, it draws me. I mean, and it's exciting. It's yeah. exciting. You do a lot of research. There's a, somewhere in the publicity for this book, there's a picture of you in your study, and you're surrounded by these books, piles and piles of them, you <laughs> yes. know. Uh, and you're talking about your fondness for doing, for doing research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's fun. Do, do you... Uh, did, did you also travel? I just I just happened to run across a little article about Comfort Texas, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't realize was was founded by free thinkers. I mean, so did you yes. did you go to Comfort? And is there anything left of Indianola? Oh, I I did go to Comfort. I, I still go to Comfort quite mm. often because we have a place. My my family has a place that's out in the hill country, mm. um, just about you know twenty minutes from from Comfort. And um, so I'm out there a lot. I spent a lot of time out there as a kid. It's, a, um, you know, with horses and mm-hmm. livestock and various yeah. other things. So it's great. 
So I'm really familiar with the Hill Country mm -hmm. um, and love that area. And, um, and then my grandparents lived in Corpus Christi, so I sort of know the coastal regions mm -hmm. also. We spent a lot of time in Port Aransas. And um, Indianola, though, is gone. I mean, yeah. Indianola was totally wiped out by two successive two hurricanes, hurricanes yeah. and then a fire. Yeah, it just was not meant to be. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, you know, but that whole sense of being on the water and 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 what it's like and sort of the change in the air and the landscape and mm -hmm. vegetation everything between the hill country and and uh and the coast is is something i'm really familiar with yeah. do, do you feel like you're also telling your readers something about the history and is it important is it important to be to be accurate i mean i was thinking about uh for example uh and and whether you maybe you run across stories that you can't resist including like uh and we didn't in our summary we didn't mention jorge who is a a character who comes in later and he is a black seminole from florida mm -hmm. who has somehow wound up in texas and he tells them the whole story of the what was the so-called negro fort which an early slave rebellion which i knew nothing about but i do now because i read your book mm -hmm. uh so i mean is that is is it is informing kind of part of your purpose Yes, um, not really so much informing, but to tell a good story, you need a lot of different kinds of characters because there mm -hmm. has to be conflict. There have to be different interests. Everybody has to be bringing their own yeah. motives and their own past to the story. And so I needed, you know, uh, I just needed um, an eclectic set of people in this mm -hmm. wagon traveling together. Yeah. And um, and so I I don't even remember how I first came across the uh, the Black Seminoles, but I was just enamored with this whole history. It's yeah. it's a, it's a, an, really an astonishing history, and um, and so that was wonderful to be able to bring that character in, mm -hmm. who has experienced. You know, he 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 would have grown up with the Seminoles. He's of mixed race. Um, he would have been removed with um, uh, during removal out to a you know reservation. And then, then the Black Seminoles and the Seminoles at some point decided, obviously, the reservation was not what it had been promised mm -hmm. to be. And, um, and they just packed up and hiked 900 miles down to Mexico. And the, the men went, you know, hired as um, uh, fighters for the Mexican government to protect the border from incursions from the north. So, which were primarily Comanche and then also renegade um, whites who mm -hmm. were many of them fleeing the law in Texas and who were just, you know, going down to Mexico and causing troubles in, in, mm. in Mexico. So they were hired on to protect the border from people coming in uh, to Mexico from the north. Huh. And then at the end of the Civil War, the U.S. Army said, you know, okay, you guys have obviously, you know, had a lot mm. of experience. We want to hire you back to work for us as scouts in the West. And, um, and Jorge at this point is an old man. His arm is useless. His fighting days are over. Uh, you know, he's been paid royally for scalps. If you, mm. you know, that's how, that's how the Mexican government paid uh, these people was for every scalp they took. So um, they, um, uh, you know, he just decides he's going to head mm -hmm. back to Florida and be able to walk around there as a free man and go in search of his sister. And that's what, and that's what he's trying to do yes, in this book, yes. you know, mm -hmm. so he has his, he has his own journey. So, but mm -hmm. it sounds like you just found that, you found that story, that, that whole story irresistible and just wanted to include it as, as Jorge's. I did. Uh, and it gave, and it gave great background and it also allowed me to bring together 
the treasure hunter who's found mm. this mysterious possibly cursed treasure oh. and Jorge because the, the, there has to be that intersection right. of those because lives and he knows and those the stories. real history right. of the treasure yes. the cursed treasure of the cursed if treasure. it's the cursed treasure yes uh, Yes. This is your second novel set in Texas after the Civil War. And I, I can't help, uh, Paulette Giles also called in and talked to me on one show. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess I, because a couple of her novels are set there too, like Simon the Fiddler, I kind of, I kind of see them all out there together, all these characters, mm-hmm. yes. you know, in mm-hmm. this. Uh, but is there something about that era? I mean, she calls it a, talks about a kind of societal darkness, but you know, I mean, some people are still fighting the Civil War, obviously. Mm-hmm. Some people have been displaced and are mm-hmm. desperate. Uh, and a lot of people have been displaced, whether they're desperate or not. Everyone's afraid of the Comanches. I, I kind of liked it that everyone in here, there, were no, there are no Comanches in this book, but everyone talks about them all the time, <laughs> you know. Uh, does that, does that, is that era particularly appealing to you as a writer? Uh, yes, because of, and first of all, I, ha- I haven't read... Um, her books, you mm. know, uh, th- those books and um, uh, that are set during that time period. But for me, um, uh, it's it's a fascinating period because it does have so much conflict in di- of different kinds in different areas of the state. Because out in the West, obviously, you know, there's all the conflict with the different indigenous people, and then in you know in the East, um, there is this conflict, obviously, with these um, these. People like, you know, the, the the people in the book, the the Swamp Fox Gang, yeah. who um, are basically committing lots of crimes against the freed black men and freed black women, and who are terrorizing towns because people are afraid to stand up to them. Yeah. And even the you know the people the, the federal government these people dislike the federal government because obviously the federal government has come down to impose the new laws, and so they um, they were you know murdering. Uh, people yeah. from the federal government. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did, did you know about them, or did you find did you discover that story as you prepared this book? Or I discovered that as I prepared the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, I did not know about those uh, mm-hmm. those groups, but when you start reading about Reconstruction era Texas and really mm-hmm. diving in for the Witch Way Tree, I didn't have to know as much because I was only dealing with the hill country mm-hmm. and the story all takes place in the landscape. Basically these two kids tracking this mountain lion that's killed the girl's mother. So, um, you know, they're, they're not involved in the politics to the same extent in, uh, and in this book, you know, they're, they are in a big way because Nell's husband is a member of one of these, you know, really mm-hmm. hideous gangs of people. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I had, you know, when I came across them, I just thought, I never learned this in school. You know, this is yeah. really fascinating. And so then I started reading, and there are, you know, complete histories, you know, complete books written about these gangs mm-hmm. that are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, yeah. They're sort of precursors. I don't know when the Ku Klux Klan started, during Reconstruction, I about guess. About this time, yeah. and yeah, and, and it, it's it's basically, yeah, these, these people, it's the same mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're they're terrifying. Nell Nell wants is fleeing because she does not want Tot to be raised to be one of these people. Right, you know? and she's you know she's also, um, you know she feels culpable in some way because you know she's having to reckon with herself about when did she actually know about these crimes that her husband was committing, and you know she was afraid to go to the law when she when she really realized, but. 
when did she cross over from just suspecting to actually knowing? Yeah. And did she go early enough? And what crimes were committed in the meantime that she might have been able to stop had she had the courage to go earlier? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she's she's afraid of them taking her son more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But also, you know, afraid for her life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You give her that in common with Ben. I mean, that kind of scrupulous, you know, mm-hmm. moral... Conscience. Conscience, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought, I thought was, was very nice. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to say much about the plot. You have to read it. It's wonderful. It's full of adventure. I mean, I suspect that there are, there are readers, I'm, I, me, I'm, you know, I'm particularly interested in language, so for me it's Ben's voice that, that makes it really wonderful and special, but I suspect there are readers who would, who would love to just just to hear these adventures, no matter who narrated them, you know, uh, they're so exciting. Uh, let's see, we have a rattlesnake, we have a hailstorm, the gang members do catch up with them, I won't tell you what happens. Uh, one reviewer said that you are a master at rustling up competing forces to create cinematic calamities. There's, there's one scene even in which all these things happen at once, including the rattlesnake, and, and Ben actually lists them. He says, event number one, event number two, <laughs> event number three, uh, and, and it changes the dynamic of the scene very dramatically. Uh, how do you come up with stuff like that? I don't know. I mean, I, that scene, I loved writing that particular scene because it is just one unexpected you know, yeah. moment after another, and you know, the characters are in a very precarious situation, that you can't see any way they're going to get out of. Yeah. And then suddenly these, these things start to happen that, um, that allow them to get out of it and, um, and allow the scene to end very differently from what you would expect. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I laughed through that scene. It's a very violent scene. Yeah. But of course, you know, the violence happens to the bad guys. And so, you know, um, it's fun to, to write those scenes. Yeah, and some of some of the cinematic calamities are fun. The one, and I can, I, I didn't want to go into detail about that one, you know, but uh, but there is one uh, very funny one early on when when uh, Dickie and and Ben and they've acquired another passenger uh, come upon the stage, the stagecoach. They do catch up with it, and it is being robbed, and it's being robbed by for, I guess they're adolescents, you know, they're mm-hmm. kids. They're dressed up like Indians, but it's obvious since one of them, since one of them is black and, and two of them are white that, that they're not really Indians. Uh, and they are successfully robbing the thing. The imposter thieves unhitched the mules and began to pack them with items they got, had got from the coach. The one who was a Negro stopped, strapped Dickie's bag on top of a load and strove to tie the load with a shortage of rope. He hollered about how he needed more rope. One of the two white imposters said to make do, there being no more rope brought along. An argument commenced about who should have thought to bring it. The quarrel was undergoing when all of a sudden, a pack of mounted men came charging down into the wash from the far side, directly across the way from us, firing weapons and heading full tilt toward the coach. There was in bright sun that struck on that side. I counted five of them. They wore feed sacks over their heads and did not appear to have come for a good purpose. <laughs> I love that line. Um, the imposter thieves seen them coming and taken cover in and about the coach. They drew their weapons. This all occurred in a jiffy. Uh, and this is, it, it doesn't turn out to be quite as violent as you expect 
that it might be because it looks like the 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 thieves with the feed sacks are the parents of the imposter thieves. <laughs> yes. yes, it's really very funny. Uh, yes, yes. How, how, did did you watch a lot of old westerns? Uh, yes, I did. I I watched a lot of old westerns as a child because mm. my brother. Um, would come in and change the channel from whatever I was watching. And he was he was older. He was three years older. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we've joked about it. It was just kind of the law of the West in our house. You mm-hmm. know, if you were bigger, you had charge of the television set, you know. So he would come in. I would be watching, you know, oh, Bewitched or Gilligan's Island or, you know, one of those shows. And then, um, and then suddenly, you know, he would walk in and we were watching Gunsmoke or, you know, mm-hmm. one of those. And so um, I got very used to all the, the, the weaponry and just the, the shootouts and the whole thing. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that kind of burned its way into my brain yeah. as a child. Yeah. yeah. Along with those, all those Dickens novels. Right? <laughs> Along yeah. with all those Dickens novels. It just yeah. comes, comes galloping out. There is a fair amount of violence here, though sometimes it's averted as it is these, these two sets of thieves. What is it? What, how is it Ben puts it? I, I, I changed the page, but he says something like, uh, this is not something one would expect to encounter or whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, a robbery. Of, yeah, yeah. Uh, a hold up of a hold up. Yes, that what hold, yeah, 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 a hold up of a hold up. <laughs> yeah, uh, but so it does not turn out to to, to be a, a major gun battle. But there mm-hmm. is definitely violence in here. Mm-hmm. Some of it with guns, some uh, some knives, other mm-hmm. things. Um, uh, and I did notice you wrote an article about some time ago. Maybe you've forgotten it, but uh, I noticed this on your website. A venture into the night. Some notes on violent fiction. Would, mm-hmm. would you say something about violence and how you feel about it? And, yeah, so I, you know, I, I, um, my, all of my books tend to be, other than The Raven's Bride, my first book, which, which does contain a duel, mm-hmm. um, where somebody is, you know, gravely wounded, but, um, uh, the rest of them all tend to have either, you know, large scale massacres or just a lot of, a lot of innate violence. And, and, um, I don't, I, I think the reason I do that is simply because, I really get more invested writing a book when 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 the characters have something momentous at stake, when they are mm-hmm. in danger. If they, you know, I don't think I could be very well entertained writing a book um, where they're just squabbles and people with small problems, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it, to, to, to worry about my characters, to really fret about how they're going to get out of a situation, it needs to be... A dangerous situation, and mm-hmm. so I, I'm constantly putting my characters, at, at, you know, at risk, oh, and um, and it just makes the writing more um, compelling to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, I tried one time just to write kind of a light contemporary novel, and uh, I just I it wasn't I, it was it was just going to be funny and light and contemporary, and I was not caring anything about it. I wasn't really wanting to get up and work at it. And, uh, and then it, this was actually Monday, Monday. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, um, it turned into, I, I, I took that it back 40 years. That guy got up on the top of the count, That's right. tower t- and started shooting. I took it back 40 years to the beginning of the, of the mother's story. And, and, and she was a victim of, of Charles Whitman. And so, um, uh, immediately I was then invested mm-hmm. in this woman and, mm-hmm. and her future life. 
That's interesting. Do you know what's going to happen to them? I interviewed one mystery writer, they've said different things, who said something like, well, I never know who the murderer is until I get, until I get to the, towards the end, yeah. you know, and other people who say, oh, no, well, no, I plot it out. Yeah. But, I mean, you put them in, it, you get invested because you put them in peril. Do you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen with the peril until you? You know, I, I actually thought uh, I, I actually thought there was going to be a different end for this book until mm. I got to a certain place and thought I'm, I I can't end it that way. You mm -hmm. know, um, and uh, I don't usually know from chapter to chapter. I have some idea of what's over the next hill. You know, mm -hmm. but but I uh, tend to write without an outline, mm. and a lot of that is because I want my characters to behave as real people would. Mm -hmm in the situation they're put in. So, and you don't know the exact situation they're in until you finish writing that, mm -hmm. that chapter, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you think, okay, given who these people are, authentically, what would they do now? What would they say? How are mm -hmm. they gonna get out of this situation? Mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, just making up all the situations ahead of time, which I don't think I would have the imagination to do. Mm -hmm. I need to feel my way. So I kind of go on a journey with the characters and it's not like I'm just clueless and along for the ride because obviously I have to, I have to make it up at some point, you yeah. know. But the point at which I make it up is a little later than most writers, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. I think I don't, I don't have a long vision down the mm -hmm. road. Yeah. And we are up on another break. All right. You're listening to what happened there. You're listening to Bookmarked on KZSM 104.1 FM and live streaming on KZSM.org. From beautiful downtown San Marcos, Texas, you're listening to True Community Radio. Jane, stop this crazy thing. You've been listening to my groove box. I'm Carlos, so this is Carlos's groove box on KZSM.org. Wednesdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, San Marcos, Texas. Y'all. KZSM.org would like to thank Truth and Light Crystal Shop for generously underwriting our programming. Truth and Light Crystal Shop, located at 171 South LBJ in San Marcos, right next to Red Bud Roasters, wants to be the supplier of all your metaphysical needs with the large inventory of beautiful crystals, jewelry, candles and incense, all at affordable prices. They also provide sound bath, Reiki, and tarot card readings. That's Truth and Light Crystal Shop, located at 171 South LBJ in San Marcos, Texas. For more information, you can reach them at 512-551-0921. Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections, one of the crown jewels of Texas State University. Now on display, Writer at Large, The Creative Journeys of William Broyles. Follow one of Texas' brightest creative lights as William Broyles becomes Texas Monthly's founding editor at age 27, then journeys to Vietnam as the first combat veteran to return on a mission of peace, then emerges as the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of Castaway and Apollo 13. Admission is always free, and we have free visitor parking. Please check out our website at thewitliftcollections.texasstate.edu. All right, welcome back. Uh, to our conversation with Elizabeth Brooke, Brooke about the wonderful Mad Stone. Um, and I'd like to talk about maybe some of the other characters uh, as well as, I mean, you, you, the way you've just been talking about them, it sounds like kind of their 
they're real people who are for you as you write the book who are sort of living in your consciousness and you know and you have to see what they're going to do all right yeah um i mean they, they are the people you get up i mean you get up in the morning and you are with these people mm-hmm. all day as a writer and um and so yeah they you get very familiar yeah. with them one reviewer thought, it said, and again, this is another reviewer I don't agree with, but some readers will find it unfortunate that they are not allowed to tell their own stories or have them recounted by a narrator uh, rather than the only voice this novel has to offer, that of Benjamin Shreve. I think this is the guy who just didn't get Ben. I don't know what's the matter with him. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, but do, do you ever consider, like, uh, other points of view or, uh, you know? Um, you know, I like telling... I, I, in, in my other books, other than the Benjamin books, they have all been told from the viewpoint of an omniscient narrator. Mm-hmm. So I have the points of view of all the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I have not typically liked books that were written in first person where you only had the one. Because to me, often that one character becomes tedious or self-aggrandizing, just too self-absorbed because they're just telling a story of what they saw, what they heard, what they, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, what they felt, but, but Benjamin doesn't talk about himself so much. Benjamin is telling a story to somebody else about other people. And so he is relieved of that kind of self-absorption that we don't like in people. I mean, we don't Mm -hmm. like people who talk about themselves all the time. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I, I find that quality really endearing in him and that he's always dutifully telling the story for somebody else mm-hmm. and about other people. So um, I and I loved writing in first person for another reason, which is that it it leaves you the option of stripping out every extraneous detail. So that if you're writing from the viewpoint, you know, of, of an omniscient narrator, you feel the need to explain a little bit more about what's going on in a scene. Benjamin isn't going to go into anything extraneous, so it makes the story move really quickly, really fast. And I think you do get a real sense of who those other characters are and what they're feeling, what they're doing, because he's a very observant, very wise kid, you know. Yes. And um, and so just through, you know, subtle methods, um, I feel that the reader comes to know these characters all you know, really well. Now, Nell is a very contained, very self-controlled um, yeah. woman. Very strong, but very quietly strong. She is not, like, a lot, you know, I feel like a lot of uh, contemporary fiction ne- feels the need for the woman to be, you know, really take charge in a, in a very sort of adamant way. Uh, Nell is quiet about what she wants as right. far as, uh, protecting her child, but she will give up anything to do that. And so her strength comes across as a very quiet and self, self, um, a private strength. And I find that uh, a really admir- admirable character and um, uh, characteristic. And, and I think, you know, Ben begins to fall for her because she is so, um, I mean, she's soft in a way because she's not loud. But she is. But there's a buried, hidden strength uh, in her in her um, dedication to this child. Yeah, yeah. And and Ben certainly falls in love with her. Uh, he is. This is his his situation is described to him by Dickie, which I I just like this. Uh, 
You know, there's knuckleheads that'll take off riding along a ledge halfway down the side of a bluff. It'll get thinner and tighter until they're snugged against the wall with a steep drop down below and a high wall alongside. But they'll keep on going. Then all of a sudden, they go around to bend, and whoa, the ledge is petered out. There's no room for a horse to turn around, and it can't walk backwards on such a narrow stretch as that. They're stuck. That could be you, my friend. You're on a ledge just like that. I seen how you look at Nell Baines. For your own peace of mind, I advise you, don't go around that bend. Uh, he says, I give it thought. I give your mother and you a good deal of thought as well. And he lies there and stares at the stars. I own to myself how Dickie had made a worthy point, though the ledge was far, was all likely far too narrowed already for that to matter. Yeah. So, yeah. He's out on the ledge. So sure. it's a very, yeah. uh, I mean, she, uh, my question was a bit mysterious, and it was whether she was mysterious. And you kind of answered that, that mm -hmm. uh, she has a, and she does have a, that single-minded purpose of trying to protect Todd yeah. and keep him Very from interior, you know, yeah. becoming one of those one of those guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a beautifully restrained love story. I mean, of course, there's not there's not much they can do with her in the final stages of pregnancy, and their their most romantic scene is in the bed of a of a wagon. But <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes. But but I did I did yeah. like the. The, because Ben would talk about it with and restraint. Yeah, with restraint, because he's, I mean, he's relaying the story to her son, who's not going to read it till he's a grown person, mm -hmm. but but um, he's very um, surreptitious in his description of anything that happens. So the, a lot is left to the imagination of the reader, but yeah. I think pretty easily filled in. Yes, yes, and I, I like that a lot. Uh, Dickie is a wonderful character. He's treasure hunter who has actually found a treasure, though it might be cursed, mm -hmm. and he's this great storyteller. He has stories all the time. Some of them are entertaining. Sometimes uh, Ben gets tired of them. He doesn't like it, particularly there's one episode, one scene in which Dickie tells Tot stories about the banshee, and it scares Tot, and, mm -hmm. and Ben is not happy with him for doing that, but uh, he, um, he, he has... A, a wonderful kind of sensibility. I don't know. I'll, I'll read this passage and then kind of add, and, and to to frame the question. Sort of, you sort of seem to be using Dickey to talk about the relationship between belief and reality. In other words, do we do we make things so because we believe them? You know, if he thinks uh, the treasure is cursed, is that going to happen? Uh, because Dickey is all about belief. Uh, Dickie told more of his hunt for treasures. This is when they first meet. It was a lifetime hunt, he said, embarked upon when he was a boy, and his father taught him to pan for gold in a stream in, Ar in Arkansas nearby their house. The stream was no more than a gully and oftentimes dry, and this gave him the gift of eternal hope. Eternal hope, he declared, as there was no gold in the waters he learned to pan in, and none was ever found there, and the task was only a trick to get him out of the house, as otherwise he was a pest to the family, being the youngest. Uh, but he was good at the work. How did that make you an op optimist, I asked, as it seemed a sensible question. He's already identified that way. He scoffed that I should ask it. If you find nothing, you, you hold the eternal hope of coming across it, he claimed. A point or two against such thinking come to my mind, but I did not see any purpose in making any of them and kept my mouth shut whilst he carried on his, with his talk of treasures and being hopeful and such. It was primarily hogwash. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, is, is he... It, it, it did send me as a reader kind of off into, well, do we really make our own reality or don't mm-hmm. we? You know, people tell you that all the time. So. Yeah. And Dickie, I mean, I love dealing with Dickie because he does, he does get to tell a lot of stories um, that are just a paragraph here and there of something really interesting and, and often something really true, you know. Uh, and he's just, and he's, he's, he's a fun character. I mean, he was a really, turns into a very lovable, you don't know what to think of him in the beginning. Well, he's, he's the victim of a digestive misfortune. (laughs) Yes, in the beginning. beginning. (laughs) Which, uh, scatological is someone, that's a great, that's a great beginning. I mean, it really pulls you in. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Todd is a wonderful four-year-old. And I thought about, I, I had a, did a volunteer thing, reading to three and four-year-olds. So I know something of that. It's that it's, really a wonderful age uh Mm -hmm. is that i mean why did you why did you make him that age you know originally he was going to be five and Mm -hmm. then um i was um around you know a little five-year-old boy and i thought "Mm, nope the way because uh, it's been a long time since my son was that age, mm-hmm. so the way uh, the way Dick, the way that Todd was responding to things was more like four. Mm-hmm. So I changed his age to four yeah. from five. Mm-hmm. I loved it. He comes, uh, he throws a wonderful tantrum, and it's at the very end. And after he's been through all of these things and and dealt with it, uh, you waved your arms about and wailed and cried and was deeply aggrieved at what you figured was my deception. You worked yourself into such a fit of frustration that you laid down in the dirt and kicked your legs and become dead weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, great. yeah uh, Todd holds up through a lot of things, oh, yes. a whole lot of things. But in the last moments, a small thing mm-hmm. just sends him over the edge, he, which he is wants, very typical of children. Yeah. yeah, he wants to build sand forts, and they don't mm-hmm. get to the coast, and there isn't a beach there, and they're mm-hmm. not able to. Ben wants to build sand forts, too. He's yeah. never seen the ocean. Yeah. Um, the Madstone, the Madstone, and it's that you've got this kind of obscure thing as your title. Do people keep coming up to you and say, "What's well, what's a Madstone? Why do you call your book that?" You know, the, uh, it appears in the novel when Todd has apparently been bitten by a rabid coyote. Uh, why did you choose that as a title, and how did you learn about Madstones? It's just such a great word and such a great concept that there would be this object, this otherwise very weird and benign object which is basically you know a stone like like a kidney stone or bladder stone mm-hmm. or gallstone that grows inside the belly of a a, a deer or other mm-hmm. you know r- ruminant animal of some kind um that can draw out toxins that can mm-hmm. pull out you know uh poison um and it kind of to me benjamin is sort of like that in real life you know he's such a good character and he tends to bring out what's good and 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 rid people of what's bad you know Mm -hmm. um and i uh i I just sort of liked that analogy of benjamin uh to as to a madstone i I make it very very subtly very subtly um but it's it's in there and also i mean it's just a good word for a title i mean Mm -hmm. I, i just feel like and it's a, you know it's a, it's such a strange object. I mean these these things were they were coveted objects. Mm-hmm. They were um, passed down in families. They were brought over from Europe. Many of them, they were kept locked up in oh, it's places. Oh, it's a European tradition. Um, it's oh yes, it mm-hmm. comes yeah. It's it's it, it's been around a long time. And yes, that many of the madstones uh, came from 
you know, Europe. Mm-hmm. And um, so they were, um, uh, they were sort of this magical, medicinal, you know, thing, but they mm-hmm. didn't work, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because so nothing, people must have thought they did. People thought they did because there were enough times when maybe the animal wasn't rabid mm-hmm. or maybe the bite wasn't deep enough for the poison to, you know, penetrate penetrate for the toxin so so people continue to believe in them and also there was the fact that there was nothing else to believe it i mean the, you know the, the death from rabies was so horrible i mean when i started reading about what people went through i mean you mm-hmm. would have to you know people did just go mad and yeah you so have a description they there. Would someone tells a story have to shoot themselves or you know they would be tied to a tree to keep them from you know Children were smothered under mattresses. I mean, horrible, horrible things. So you would put your hope in anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and the treatments were just as bad. I mean, the treatments, not just as bad, but the treatments were really, really difficult, terrible treatments. Um, and so the Madstone was a treatment, a possible treatment that people could believe in that, uh, that, was, that, that was not painful, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, uh, and, and gave, gave hope. And seemed to work just enough times to keep to keep you know to keep the the, the theory alive mm-hmm. and um there's actually uh we at the whitliff when i i spoke at the whitliff you know uh, uh, not long ago um and it may st- still be up a, a, a display case with a real madstone in it oh i have to go belonging right to somebody uh, ryan mm-hmm. perkins who mm-hmm. lives here in san marcus mm-hmm. and so he was nice enough to lend that to them when they did this uh this um display case of different things having to do with the book and it and it has the madstone unless he's take unless ryan has taken the madstone back it would still be in the case yeah mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I didn't. I didn't get the parallel with Ben as kind of the the madstone. But it may nice. be a little of a stretch, you know. But yeah. I just. I. I really. I really liked the, the the title and the idea of of something that could, you know, that could remove what's what's evil, what's bad, and just mm-hmm. draw it out, you know. Mm-hmm. And and um and so that's ben does it. And Ben does that, yeah. We are about out of time. Is and you you hinted already that you Ben might have another story to tell. Maybe that cattle drive he keeps wanting to go on. <laughs> I you know, I I really am trying to decide. I mean, I I um I do love writing in his voice, but I also miss writing you know, in I mean, I've written other books that obviously mm-hmm. are told very differently. Um, and so I don't know what I'll write next, but mm-hmm. I have had a lot of people ask me, mm-hmm. you know, will it be a trilogy? Yeah. But I do a third or, or fourth yeah, or maybe whatever. take a break and then go back to Ben and re- then go back, re- maybe revisit. that, you yeah. know, and see. And so, you know, I, 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 I actually have no idea what the answer to that question is. Okay. Well, Elizabeth Crook, thank you so much for coming and talking to me in person about, and thank you so much for this book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, next week, if all goes well, a, a live dramatization of A Christmas Carol. I've uh, created a script and have some, some of our program hosts and our bookmark regular guest, and uh, we're going to get some eggnog and put rum in it and, uh, <laughs> and, read, and read A Christmas Carol for you, so I certainly hope you will tune in. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Priscilla, for having yeah. me here.